Tonight, straight from the source, new not guilty pleas in Georgia, including from Rudy Giuliani, who just waived his right to an arraignment. As tonight, Mark Meadows awaits a crucial ruling that could potentially impact the entire criminal case. Plus, they met in Florida after Hurricane Ian and the Surfside condo collapse. President Biden said he would be with Governor Ron DeSantis again tomorrow when he's in Florida. But now the Republican governor and 2024 candidate is saying otherwise. And efforts to knock Trump off the ballot are gaining steam. It's a long shot legal theory, but it is now at the heart of a battle between Republicans. One of them who is leading the charge will join me in moments. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Rudy Giuliani has now joined 11 other co-defendants in pleading not guilty as we head into this holiday weekend, all waiving their arraignments in Georgia next week. That leaves seven left to enter their own pleas. And we are still waiting tonight to learn about Mark Meadows' fate, a decision that could come at any time on his attempt to move his case to federal court. But that would just be the first step in what he is ultimately trying to do here, which is get his charges dismissed entirely. If this doesn't come by Wednesday, Trump's former chief of staff will still have to enter a plea, just like Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and 10 others have done so far. Meanwhile, the first defendant with a scheduled trial date in Georgia, Kenneth Cheeseborough, had made crystal clear in a motion today that he really, really wants nothing to do with his fellow co-defendant, Sidney Powell, who followed in his footsteps and also asked for a speedy trial. Cheeseborough arguing, they are like oil and water wholly separate and impossible to mix into one conspiracy. Just to reinforce the idea here, he said in his court filing, he has never physically met Powell, never sent an email to her, never received an email from her, never called her, never received a phone call from her, never texted her, never received a text message from her, and never communicated with Powell through any social media or telecommunication app. Got it? Meanwhile, Trump has filed a motion to separate his case from both Kenneth Cheeseborough and Sidney Powell. Let's break all of this down tonight with two top Georgia prosecutors, J. Tom Morgan, the former DeKalb County District Attorney, and Melissa Redmond, a former Fulton County prosecutor. J. Tom, I will start with you. I mean, obviously you were part of that brief, I should note, against Meadows trying to move that to court. We're still waiting to hear what happens there. But with Rudy Giuliani pleading not guilty, making it a total of 12 who've done so already, that means they don't actually have to show up in court next week. What is what is the strategy in that? Is there a strategy, do you believe? Caitlin, what they're trying to do is divide and conquer by having separate trials in different courts. And that way, uh, pushing the prosecutor in many different directions. The under underlying with Mr. Meadows and everybody else, Caitlin, uh, trying to get into federal court is they do not want this case broadcast to the American people. Uh, no offense to your uh, profession journalism, but I don't want to, a reporter to tell me what was said in court. I want to see it for myself. And that's what these uh, defendants are trying to do. They do not want this case in federal court where the secrecy and cameras and recorders are not allowed. Melissa, what do you think is ultimately going to happen here? Because with Meadows here, really, this is a two-step. It's moving it to federal court for the sake of, of not being in state court, but also he wants to dismiss it outright entirely. And we haven't heard from the judge yet, but he's gotten those arguments. Do you think the fact that, that we haven't heard from the judge here is a sign that, that this is a tough call? 
Absolutely. I think it's an issue of first impression. I think whatever the judge decides, there will be an appeal or an attempt to appeal. Of course, if he decides to remand the case back to state court, Mark Meadows will have a right to appeal that decision. Um, and if he does not remand it, the state will try to appeal because it's still an unanswered question of whether the state would have a right to appeal um, a refusal, a, re a judge's refusal to remand the case back to state court. And I, so I think it'll still be some time before we have a final answer on where exactly Mr. Meadows' case will be heard. Oh, that's a good point. I mean, just because we get the ruling may not actually be uh, the final decision here. Jay Tom, we have now tr two Trump co-defendants, Sidney Powell, Kenneth Cheeseborough, not only is seeking both speedy trials, but very clearly Kenneth Cheeseborough making clear today that he wants to separate his from hers. I mean, what's the what's your sense of the likelihood of him being able to successfully make that argument? Caitlin, those are spacious arguments. And the reason is uh, RICO is a powerful tool and the one side doesn't need to know what the other side is doing to put them all in a RICO case. This is a conspiracy case. Uh, and as you know, going back to the mob bosses who were prosecuted, you could have gambling, you could have prostitution, you could have auto theft, and all of it is under the umbrella of RICO. So the fact that Mr. Cheesebro does not know Ms. Powell, never met her, uh, never emailed her, as long as they're part of the same conspiracy, they can and will be together. Melissa, is that your sense of, of do you agree that it's not a basis for severing this? Absolutely. No, what they no, would have to show is that something. there was. Yeah. Go ahead, Melissa. Exactly. So what they would have to show is mm -hmm. several things. One, that that a trial together would be a violation of their due process. And that was a, that's an uphill um, climb um, that too many defendants would confuse the issues. And here we're only talking about a few so far that are subject to that October trial date, um, just two so far that are subject to that trial date that evidence against one will kind of spill over into the other. Um, they're both accused of this overall conspiracy of interfering with the election, but in different ways. So I don't think there's a danger there. Um, so in that they have antagonistic defenses and they're both saying they did nothing wrong and they're not pointing the finger at each other. So I think it would be difficult for them to win a motion to sever under the, under these circumstances. Yeah, and we've seen you know how clearly that uh Kenneth Cheeseborough is trying to say, you know, he had nothing to do with Sidney Powell. But Jay Tom, Powell's attorneys are also trying to argue that she didn't technically represent President Trump or, or the Trump campaign related to the 2020 election because she said she never had an engagement agreement. And this stood out in the, her filing. She said she appeared in no courtrooms or hearings for Trump or the campaign. She had no contact with most of her purported conspirators and rarely agreed with those she knew or spoke with. But on that part there, I mean, isn't that maybe just because she was pushing far-right conspiracy theories that were even too much for her co-defendants here? Caitlin, you make a good point, but she is all part of this conspiracy, at least by the allegations. The fact that she doesn't have an engagement letter, a lot of attorneys uh, represent clients without engagement letters. Uh, what she was doing was furthering the effort to overturn the election, uh, whether she did it in her role as an attorney for a particular entity or individual or just on herself. She's still part of the effort uh, to overturn this election in Georgia. Melissa, I mean, can you successfully argue to a judge that you weren't part of a conspiracy because your alleged co-conspirators didn't agree with you? 
Well, as long as you, you and your conspirators agreed with the overall purpose of the enterprise, and that would be to have Donald Trump declared the winner of the 2020 election when he was not. The way you go about that, you don't necessarily have to agree to those particular actions. So Cheeseboro didn't have to agree with Sidney Powell to interfere or to try to collect the data from Coffee County. Um, so, and Sidney Powell didn't have to agree with Cheeseboro as far as, you know, whatever actions he took. But as long as they agreed that we want to try to have Donald Trump declare the winner of the 2020 election when all the evidence shows he was not, um, that is all that the state's required to prove. J. Tom Morgan, Melissa Redmond, thank you both for your time on this Friday night. Thank you, Caitlin. I want to dig further into this with Timodayo Agonga-Williams, the former senior investigative counsel for the January 6th committee, someone who is very familiar with Mark Meadows. And, you know, we're waiting to hear what this decision is from the judge. But there was this part in his testimony on Monday when he was arguing for why it should be moved to federal court. And he had been asked about an email that he had sent where he had said, we just need to have someone coordinating the electors for the states. His attorney is cross-examining him and says, uh, and is asking him essentially, why did you want to make sure that someone was coordinating with the electors? Why did you care about that? Um, and he said, I didn't want to happen for the campaign to prevail in certain areas and then not have them essentially ready. His attorney said, why did you not want that to happen? Mark Meadows answered, well, because I knew I would get yelled at if we had not, dot, dot, dot. His attorney says, by whom? And he goes, by the president of the United States. I mean, is he saying that he did play a role in this and his concern was Trump yelling at him? I think there's, there's a couple of things there. First, is where you started off, is who is the we? Because in that answer, it sounds like he's talking about we from a campaign perspective, which is the crux of a lot of these issues. Was he acting as a chief of staff? Or was he acting as an agent of the campaign? There, it sounds like he's implicating himself as a campaign actor. That we is not we the White House or we the U.S. government. It's we the campaign. Secondly, he's pointing at President Trump. And I think that's going to be an issue that for former President Trump in all of these proceedings... Everyone loves to point up in these conspiracies. They want to say, it wasn't me, I was following directions. And I think you're going to see that replicated again and again throughout these defendants. And I think the third point there is whether in, in, it highlights the danger for someone like Meadows getting on the stand. Because those prosecutors are looking at every single word he said and how it can be used against him in a subsequent trial. They're looking at those words to see whether additional charges like perjury could be used against him. They're going to use that to the full capacity. And, you know, there's a reason why you have the right to remain silent, because when people speak out loud, you can make the matters worse for yourself. Yeah. And when his attorney was asked at another point, uh, he had been asked by the prosecutors about the, the word and he had used the word we. When his attorney asked him about using that in the, in the email, he said, oh, well, I think that's just a habit left over from my days in Congress. As a, as a lawmaker, I just would always use the word we to talk about teamwork and getting legislation accomplished. I mean, is that something, how do you think the judge is reflecting on that answer? I think the judge is not going to find that credible. I mean, the judge is going to be looking at the totality of circumstances, but one thing judges are constantly keyed on is that people will, will admit what they can't deny, right? That's an old saying, right? And I think here, when you give these kind of things that are not quite credible, a judge is going to look at that in one instance and apply it to the rest of your testimony. Because if you're lying about one thing, even if small, the judge is going to start presuming you're lying about something perhaps big. 
in the meantime, what we're learning is about how all of these co-defendants, those who have pleaded not guilty and those who are we're still waiting to hear what they're going to plead, though I think we can guess, yeah. uh, how desperate they're getting to pay for their legal bills. I mean, they are crowdsourcing, essentially, their legal funds. Rudy Giuliani is, J- John Eastman is, Rudy Giuliani is having a fundraiser with Trump next week, Jenna Ellis. Uh, the question, I think, though, is obviously Trump is worried about how much it would cost to pay for all these people. He doesn't even like to pay his own legal bills. But could it cost him in a different way? Could it be dangerous to him to not keep all of these co-defendants unified? I think, you know, yes. First, it's I think it's good for justice that he's not paying the legal fees. I mean, we've seen what happens when critical witnesses take on a Trump lawyer. On the Jan 6 committee, we saw it with Cassie Hutchinson. She initially had a Trump-paid lawyer, and she came to us and said, I don't recall, I don't recall, I don't recall. When she got a new lawyer, she came and she told the truth, and she provided some of, the, some of the most damning testimony against Trump. You've seen it in Florida in the documents case with Jack Smith. You had the IT worker who had a Trump lawyer, and he perjured himself. He got a new lawyer. He came and he told the truth and really helped support uh, the obstruction like charges. So exactly. Again, and I think that shows you that the danger. So I think it's good for justice, and I do think it's bad for Trump. I think it may be short-sighted in that, you know, when folks are feeling the pressure, they're going to be more inclined to want to get out of the case. And when you're charged and indicted, the quickest way to get out of a case is to plead guilty. And the best way to avoid liability when you plead guilty is to cooperate. So some of these folks, especially those that are charged with the RICO charge, which has heavier penalties, they start feeling financial pressures. That's just the beginning. And we are early. We haven't had motion practice. We haven't had court appearances. This case has not even begun to warm up. So when it does get moving, those bills are going to skyrocket, and you're going to see people, I think, start potentially turning on the former president. Jenna Ellis, the former Trump lawyer, for example, who's complained that he's not paying legal bills for them, she's raised, I think it was $180,000 last time I checked. Does that even come close to to covering what this could potentially cost? I think a case like this could easily start running into hundreds of thousands of, of dollars. I mean, these cases are incredibly expensive if you want the best representation, And here you want motion practice. You're going to have legal research. You're going to have, you know, senior lawyers working on this a lot, uh, you know, full time. This is a really complicated matter with a lot of moving parts. And if you're a lawyer, you're not paying attention just to your defendant. You have to keep track of what the other 18 are doing. You have to keep track of what Funny Willis is saying. You have to keep track of moving law. And you have to do all that while charging, uh, as many of us lawyers do, by the hour. So everything you do costs a lot of money, and these folks are really going to feel it very quickly. Yeah, sounds like it. Timodayo, thank you for joining. In Washington today, two more members of the Proud Boys were sentenced for their roles on the Capitol riot. We talked about this last night, the others who had been sentenced. Now today, Ethan Nordine, who prosecutors said was, quote, the undisputed leader on the ground on January 6th, received 18 years in prison. That is one of the longest sentences in this case so far. And it ties the sentence that was given to the Oath Keepers founder, Stuart Rhodes, but it does fall far short of the 27 years that prosecutors were seeking. Nordine said that January 6th, in his view now, is, quote, a complete and utter tragedy and claimed that he actually went to the Capitol to be a leader and keep people out of trouble. You might remember the other proud boy who was sentenced today. You see him here, Dominic Pizzola. This scene where he smashed through a Capitol window using a police riot shield, allowing, therefore, the first wave of rioters to storm the building. Once inside, he lit a celebratory cigar. In court today, though, Pozzola told the judge that he wished he had never crossed into a restricted area, and he apologized to the officer whose shield he took. 
adding, quote, there is no place in my future for groups or politics whatsoever. That was in court. When he walked out of the court after that apology and after the judge sentenced him to 10 years, which is half of what prosecutors wanted, he exited the courtroom, raising his fist and defiantly yelling, Trump won. Ahead, Spain's suspended soccer chief now says he regrets that unwanted kiss that happened at the World Cup. He's asking for forgiveness, but he also says there's been a, quote, manufactured campaign against him. But first, we have seen them come together before during emergencies. So why is Governor Ron DeSantis now not meeting with President Biden when he is in Florida tomorrow, just hours after President Biden said they would? Tonight, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says he has no plans to meet with President Biden when he heads to Florida tomorrow to survey damage from Hurricane Idalia. That was apparently news to the White House, who told CNN earlier that, yes, President Biden was going to be meeting with DeSantis. Hours later, a spokesman for the Florida governor issued a statement that reads in part, quote, in these rural communities and so soon after the impact, The security preparations alone that would go into setting up such a meeting would shut down ongoing recovery efforts. That would be different than what we saw in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian last year when Governor DeSantis and President Biden and the first spouses did meet. The White House says their visit to Florida has been planned in close coordination with FEMA as well as state and local leaders to ensure, quote, that there is no impact on response operations. Also noting that Biden told Governor DeSantis yesterday that he would be coming And the governor did not express any concerns during that call. Joining me now, Jason Osborne and Kate Bedingfield. Of course, Jason, former Trump campaign advisor, and Kate Bedingfield, the former White House, Biden White House communications director, I should note. Uh, Jason, I mean, I think the question here is, is this a legitimate reason? Because they met after Hurricane Ian. It didn't seem to be an issue then. I think it was there were a few more days in between uh, when the actual storm struck and when President Biden came down. But they also met after the condo disaster in Surfside. I mean, what do you think has changed here? And do you think this is legitimate? Well, first off, roll tide. Uh, <laughs> secondly, yes, I do think this is, I, I think there's a couple things at play here, right? I mean, the security aspect of it is very important because it is a rural area. I mean, if this hurricane was going to hit anywhere, uh, if you needed it to hit anywhere, this is the area to hit it because it was very rural and very farmland and, and foresty. So, Having Biden come in and even having the governor go into some of these areas is a big undertaking. You have to set up the perimeters around for security purposes. You don't know what you're walking into in many cases. But I think the second part of it is there. If you watch the debate last week where I can't remember which candidate uh, made the comment to Christie about Christie hugging Obama. Right. Um, There is that dynamic as well. But also, I think if you look at what DeSantis is doing, is he's standing on leadership and what he's done in disasters. I mean, if there's any state that is good in handling disasters, it's Florida. And DeSantis took it up a notch in Ian last year and did a really good job there. This year, uh, with so far, with this hurricane, I think we saw record numbers of folks without power getting their power back, uh, minimal damage. So I think there is some politics there in, in a couple different ways. One, not wanting to be with Biden, and then secondly, standing on his own and showing what he's been able to accomplish on his own. Uh, Kate, you worked for President Biden for a long time. I mean, you're familiar with with how they operate in the in the White House, what they what they believe. I mean, he clearly thought 
they were going to be meeting. He told my colleague Arlette Sines yes when she asked him earlier, uh, what do you think is going on in the White House right now? Does this affect anything for his visit tomorrow? Well, I look, I mean, you were asking what's changed from this year to last year. The only thing that's changed about this year versus last year when the president, when President Biden was there in the wake of Hurricane Ian is that Ron DeSantis is struggling in a Republican presidential primary. So, look, with regard to the president's visit, this won't change the substance of his visit. He will go. He will view the damage. He will talk to uh, people who are there, first responders who are helping clean up. He'll talk to people who have suffered. Uh, you know, this won't change the substance of his visit. Also won't change the substance of the aid that uh, his government is providing uh, to people who need it in Florida. But it is a really unfortunate time for uh, Ron DeSantis to choose to be small and petty. This is a moment where people are hurting. They want to see their leaders. They want to hear from them. It's a moment for to put partisanship aside. Again, it's something that, you know, I was with President Biden when he was uh, when he was there last year, standing with Ron DeSantis. And it was a powerful day and it was an opportunity to put politics aside in a really difficult moment. So it's unfortunate that uh, Ron DeSantis is choosing to do this, but I don't think we should kid ourselves uh, that this is about anything but politics for him. Well, yeah, Kate, just to follow that, you know the logistics going into this and the big footprint that a president does have when he travels. So you don't believe that, that it's actually a logistics issue here. There are certainly logistics, and you're absolutely right. The president brings a big footprint with him when he travels. But the president has worked through. I was on the team that helped work through many of these visits in the past. Uh, and when we've had no problem standing with governors, with mayors, uh, and with Ron DeSantis himself uh, in, in at least two previous occasions in Florida. So it can be done. It's a moment, again, when I think people want to see their leaders uh, standing together. And it's unfortunate that uh, Governor DeSantis won't be there. Jason, you mentioned something a moment ago that I thought about when, when I heard this uh, just before we came on air of what was happening here, which is last week at the debate, Vivek Ramaswamy did mention something that happened 10 years ago after Sandy hit New York and New Jersey. And, you know, he it was at the time when President Obama was running against Mitt Romney for reelection. And uh, President Obama came to New Jersey and Governor Christie at the time, governor at the time, greeted him. He didn't give him a hug, which is lore. He just kind of, you know, shook his hand and patted him on the back. But it was something that Republicans roasted him over, saying that he helped Obama uh, in that race. I mean, do you think that's what this is, that C Governor DeSantis is trying to avoid a Chris Christie moment? I don't, I don't want to assume that it's like at the forefront of their mind. I honestly do think it is it is a security issue and also it's this is an opportunity for Ron DeSantis to show what a leader in the U.S. Uh, should be as president and not taking vacation and then going over to Maui. That that was a symbolism. I think DeSantis wanted to distinguish himself between him and Biden and that he stopped the campaign, came down to Florida and, and is in the field talking to the people um, that have been affected by this. So I don't think that the Christie Obama situation is at the forefront. It's probably for a few of the staffers, a, 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 um, a memory that they would not like to relive. But at the end of the day, I think if Biden wants to come down and survey the damage, that's great. And, and to Kate's point, he's going to sit there and t talk to the people that have been affected by this. Go ahead and do it. Ron DeSantis is going to go out and be the governor and do what he needs to do and take care of the state and, and helping the state recover from the damage. But if it was a Republican president, do you think uh, he'd meet with him? I mean, if you're, you're saying it's leadership, wouldn't it be leadership to, to have two prominent leaders here meeting together despite having very different politics? I, I, no, I don't. I mean, I don't know if I would say that either. I mean, Trump had this situation as well. I mean, there's a lot of places that 
presidents should go. And but there's a lot of places that they should be aware of the footprint that they're leaving. And to Kate's point, when Biden went last year, Fort Myers is a much different area than the Big Bend of Florida, where there's one small military base in that area that they could even land Air Force One and they can transport the multitude of people that are accompanying the president. So it's distinguished, you know, by the area that it's in and also the situation and the, the damage that was not as bad as they pretended it to be at the beginning. But hey, also, uh, also, I, I would just add really quickly here that uh, if the governor wanted to uh, send a message of unity and healing, he could also meet the president at the airport. If there are logistical challenges with having the governor and his security footprint with the president, there are ways to get a picture of the two of them together. If Governor DeSantis wanted to do that, he could certainly. I, I am certain President Biden would, like, uh, would welcome what, what meeting the, him. What unity the federal government is providing the money through FEMA, which is what they've always done. And the relationship between FDEM and the federal and the federal government is very strong. So I don't know what the need here is and why there's like such an importance about whether or not the governor of Florida meets with President Biden to say, hey, we're in this together. We know they're in it together. It's just there a longstanding tradition, though, I think, of presidents dating back. I mean, you can think of any natural disaster. You're right. The federal money still goes there. But but this has hurt politicians before. I mean, we can cite several presidents who we've seen that play out with them in the sense of it's not just about the funding, it's also the symbolism of it. Well, I, I don't disagree with you. And yes, there are there are situations like that. If you go back to Katrina, certainly that was a huge issue, right? With But there was a huge disconnect, I think, between the local governments of the city of New Orleans and the rest of the state and the federal government and the optics of President Bush flying around over the damage of Katrina was not good. But in this situation where you have a state like Florida, which is at the forefront and leaning forward on every disaster that comes in and has a great relationship with, with FEMA, and FEMA is has been on the ground since day one, the president, to his credit, and I think governor even thanked him for it, issued the national uh, emergency declaration, therefore clearing up any, or cleaning up, um, clearing any funds that needed to be given. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there needs to be that picture. And I don't necessarily blame DeSantis for it. Of course, there's politics involved in it, but I don't necessarily blame him for not doing it. And I don't think anybody's going to fault him for it, except folks that are not going to support him anyway. Historically, historically, in these moments after disasters, we've been Americans first and we've cling to our political sure. party second. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate to see in this moment uh, where there's an opportunity for Americans to yeah. look to their leaders and say they can set aside these kind of differences when uh, when it matters and when it counts. It's it's disappointing that this is a moment for leadership where we won't see it from Governor DeSantis. But President Biden will be there. As you said, Jason, the money will be there. The support will be there. Uh, and and he will continue to help the people of Florida. Has, is, he going to Georgia? is he going to South Carolina? I mean, they had damage, too, and there's still people without power in those states. And I don't see Biden going there. So if there's politics on DeSantis's part, there's also politics on Biden's part because they know that they messed up on Maui. And now they know that they have a chance to get a dig in at DeSantis. And so I, I think well, there's politics at play in all these situations. I would just note Florida got the brunt of this. Obviously, that was where the focus of this was when it first hit. Kate Bedingfield, Jason Osborne, we will have to leave it there on this Friday night. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Also, this week marks two years since U.S. troops left Afghanistan after a 20-year war. We can never forget those 13 U.S. service members who did not come home from that exit and when instead were killed during the chaotic withdrawal. 
Their families tonight are still seeking answers, and so many questions remain about what happened. We're going to talk about all of it, the anniversary, the deaths. Also, what is the current issue right now with refugees here in the United States with a veteran who once served there? Jack McCain is the son of the late senator and war hero John McCain, and he joins us next. This week marched two years since the last U.S. military plane left Afghanistan, ending America's 20-year war and presence there. The last days, of course, were mired in chaos and confusion, and that desperation was at its clearest during these scenes at the Kabul airport as the Taliban took control of the country. And Jack McCain joins us now. He is a veteran of the war in Afghanistan and, of course, the son of the late Senator John McCain. Jack, thank you so much for being here. How are you reflecting on on this anniversary as now we, we hit two years of the U.S. exit from Afghanistan? Well, I'd, I'd like to say thank you, first of all, for having me on and for allowing me to speak on this issue. Um, I think uh, as I reflect on the anniversary, um, I just think so much about the work ahead um, because while we can look back, we can go through the mistakes that we've made. I think the more important work to be done is to uh, figure out how we can take care of those who took care of us and who fought a war that we asked them to on our behalf. So making sure that they are taken care of in the United States, that they're evacuated um, from the countries that they may be in now, whether it's Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, or elsewhere. Uh, that's what I think about as we go forward. I know what they've done, obviously, has meant, meant so much to, me, to you, and especially during your time there. Uh, President Biden, in his statement today on the anniversary, a statement yesterday on the anniversary, he didn't specifically mention the chaos that characterized that exit or, or the bombing that happened at Abbey Gate, obviously, um, that killed 13 service members. And their families have made very clear they still want answers from the administration. Here's what they said on Capitol Hill just recently. They are sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, that were pawns in some agenda. And we deserve some information and collaboration from all political parties. It may not be easy or on your specific schedule or docket, but neither was any of this for all of us until it was. You're obviously from a military family. Jack, I mean, what goes through your mind when you, you hear the pain and frustration in their voices? Um, having spent no small amount of time in the military, I had no loss. Um, and I can appreciate keenly. Uh, while I think that the issue is incredibly horrible and one that we need to parse to ensure that it doesn't happen again, Proper policy should obviously be made so that we can go forward uh, through the process of reconciliation and trying to mitigate the moral injury to our veterans, to their families, um, and to those affected and impacted by the war. Um, and not to bring it directly back to, to the issue at hand, but one of the ways to do that is by making sure that we pass the Afghan Adjustment Act um, to do right by those that kept our service members safe. And there had obviously been hope uh, that the Taliban had kind of moderated itself. I mean, they clearly haven't. It's become kind of a human rights nightmare. I mean, especially when it comes to women and girls, they're denying education and employment to them. They even shut down beauty parlors. I mean, what have you heard about what life is like on the ground there since the U.S. exited? Absolutely. 
the Taliban are exactly who they said they were. Uh, they have clamped down on uh, entire exclu entirely exclusionary um, aspects of women's rights. Not only that, but they have reprised against those that served in the Afghan military for the United States, something they specifically promised they would not do. They have murdered them in large numbers. So uh, the Taliban will remain who they are and expecting them to change is expecting a tiger to change its stripes. It just will not happen. Um, that's that's what I think uh, going forward about the Taliban. The president also noted an issue, obviously, that you mentioned at the, at the beginning, that something you care deeply about, the 117,000 Afghan refugees who have come to the U.S. since that withdrawal. But, I mean, so far, Congress has failed to create a pathway for legal permanent residency for those who were evacuated from Afghanistan. I mean, if a member of Congress is listening to this interview tonight, how vital is it for them to get that done, to get that passed? With no overstatement, this is an issue of absolute life and death for those involved. Members who served with, alongside our armed forces, members who served in the Afghan National Army and Air Force are at risk of death if they return to Afghanistan. There is only one correct thing to do, and that is to make sure that they are taken care of, that they're given asylum and refugee status in the United States, and that we take care of them in every way possible. It's the exact same thing that we did with the Vietnam Adjustment Act after the Vietnam War. This, this case is not unique, and it is a moral imperative that we do this correctly, not just for our Afghans, but for our service members as well. Jack McCain, I know this issue is very close to your heart. Thank you for joining us on it tonight. I appreciate being here. Thank you. And new developments in the soccer scandal in Spain that has rocked the world. The official suspended for kissing a player without her consent admits to mistakes, but there's a catch. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Spain's now-suspended soccer chief has just released a new statement on the unwanted kiss that he gave to a player at the World Cup. Luis Rubiales says that he made some obvious mistakes, which he says he regrets sincerely, but he's still claiming that his actions were consensual when, of course, Jenny Hermoso says that they were not. Julie Foudy is a retired captain of the U.S. women's national team and a gold medalist in soccer. Julie, uh, what do you make of his continued defiance here and the perspective and the shaping this gives to, to Spain's standing in soccer? Well, he just continues to dig that hole. I don't, I don't understand, you know, the point of all of this. I think obviously what we've seen is one, you have for the first time ever a women's team in Spain win that world cup. And that has never happened in that country. So 
in this moment of joy and and glee for these women, all of a sudden, all of that is taken away by the, this man's Rubialis's refusal to one even apologize at first. He just said, "No, I'm not resigning. I'm I'm doubling down." Actually, and it was consensual, and it was almost blaming it on her. They even threatened to sue Jenny Hermoso, as we know, the Spanish Federation. So. Um, I, I think the difference, honestly, Caitlin, this time around, because obviously we know this has been happening for a very long time in women's sports and not just women's sports. Um, I think a lot of women watching will agree that this happens in a lot of different industries, is that you have this movement culturally in society, in society where you're seeing a global reaction to this, not just soccer players defending her, not just women. We've seen men soccer players. We've seen men's Spanish national team players threatening not to play for their Spanish national team. But there has been a global reaction to that, and the government is responding to it. And so I think this will not end well for him. Not end well for him. I mean, it certainly is resonating. Do you think it changes things for permanently going forward for, for not just this team and this sport, but for the way people view this overall? Yeah, and I think actually that's, if you can find a silver lining in it, that is the, is the silver lining because it will be this transformative moment. This is a team, just to give some context to the Spanish national team, that a year ago said there was 15 key star players who said we will not play for this national team anymore until there are systemic changes in leadership and coaching and the way we're treated. Uh, and so the Spanish Federation, when that letter came to them, said, how dare you even threaten this? That's not your lane. Apologize. They slapped him on the wrist and said, apologize or you will never play for the Spanish national team. So that Spanish national team that actually won this World Cup had about 10 players who would not go back to the national team that were stars. It wasn't even their best team. To give you a sense of this is not just about a kiss. This is about a larger systemic issue. And finally, you're getting a cultural reaction, not just in Spain, but globally to something that, as we know, has been around for a very long time. Yeah, it's quite a moment. Julie Foudy, of course, you have perspective on this like few others. So thank you for joining me. Thank you, Caitlin. Up next, a fight over whether former President Trump should be on the ballot in New Hampshire in 2024. A key Republican will join us. New Hampshire Republicans have reignited a debate over whether Donald Trump lawfully can be on the ballot in 2024 in their state. This dispute took off after an attorney who Trump endorsed for Senate, I should note, in 2020, urged the Secretary of State to review whether Trump is ineligible to run for office under the 14th Amendment. This, of course, bars any American official who has taken an oath to uphold the Constitution from holding future office if they later engaged in, quote, an insurrection or rebellion. The man behind this push in New Hampshire, Corky Messner, joins me now. Corky, of course, as I noted, it bears repeating, you were endorsed by Trump when you ran for, for the U.S. Senate, I should note. And you recently met with New Hampshire Secretary of State to urge him to seek legal guidance on this issue before the Republican primary. Why? Well, it's, a, it's an important issue, Caitlin. And, uh, and I think that uh, because we're in the first in the nation primary here, it's important that this issue get decided as soon as possible, because if it gets decided after the first in the nation primary here in New Hampshire, then the New Hampshire voters will be disenfranchised. So he's seeking guidance from the attorney general. I think that's a good move on his part. And, uh, and everyone's awaiting his decision. And then based on that decision, uh, we'll decide how best to proceed. 
It's, uh, you know, the bot article that talks about this, it's very, very compelling that Donald Trump is in fact disqualified. And I know the Secretary of State has that article. I suspect he's read it. I suspect the Attorney General has read it. And, um, and I, I think it's an issue that needs to get to the United States Supreme Court just as expeditiously as possible so we can yeah. get guidance from the court. Corky, when people say, they look at this and say, they, this is a legal long shot, what do you say back to them? Oh, I don't think so. This is part of the Constitution. And, and the thing that, that has really surprised me in this, Caitlin, is, is we conservatives are supposed to be uh, uh, constitutional conservatives. And we believe in what's written in the Constitution. And suddenly, uh, conservatives don't have much interest in that. And that really surprises me. And uh, the other part of it is I would have thought that there would be some counter to the bod argument, you know, from those in the Trump camp and in a similar uh, article, but there's nothing been published. So, so it, I think it speaks to the strength of the bar, bod article that um, that that's very compelling. It it looks like a Supreme Court opinion. Corky. Republicans in your state, the chair of the state Republican Party, says he's a friend of yours, but he doesn't agree. And that even if there is a lawsuit, they are going to intervene on that behalf. What do you make of that? Yeah, I, you know, I know him and, you know, some of his comments, quite frankly, I think uh, have, have been a bit embarrassing for him. It, it I look at it this way. Um, if we don't follow the Constitution and fight for the Constitution, then we look like a banana republic. So we need to honor the Constitution. I don't think he or the NHGOP has looked at this issue uh, very closely. Uh, I urge them to. I have a, uh, an opinion piece in the union leader uh, this Sunday that's coming out that, that asks them to do that. Well, Corky, we will be sure to read that as well, the New Hampshire union leader. Corky Messner, thank you very much. And keep us updated on what you hear about that review. Anytime, Caitlin. Thanks for having me on. Have a good weekend. You too. And we'll be back in just right. a moment. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Happy Labor Day weekend to everyone. And also, more importantly, happy college football kickoff weekend to all of those who celebrate. And of course, Roll Tide. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillip starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.